Hi, I think we're live. I think I'm gonna go. Okay, so uh, welcome back to Africa's a Country Talk. Um, I'm Sean Jacobs, and with me is Will Shoki, who uh, we are we're the co-presenters of Africa's a Country Talk, uh, which is our weekly discussion and interview show. Uh, we are taping live, and our producer is Antoinette Engel, who's based in Cape Town. Um, this, this, <laughs> it's like this. <laughs> 11. <laughs> thing with, you should do like a more serious thing. This is episode 11. It's the second episode uh, since our official launch. And I would encourage you to go back, sign up to our Patreon, Patreon forward slash Africa as a country, the same way we spell the name of the website, and watch last week's episode uh, where we revisited the legacy of Steve Bantubico. Uh, with with three great guests, and, and you can you can watch clips on the YouTube channel. But if you want to see the whole show, you have to um, <laughs> sign up for the Patreon, um, and you can go back and look at all the the shows in our archive. So, right up from the bat, Will, how are you doing? Thanks for asking, Sean. Uh, I'm doing good. I think uh, here in Johannesburg, the first thunderstorms of the spring have started, and for anyone who doesn't live in in this great city, Johannesburg thunderstorms are these dramatic spectacles, which afterwards always leave you feeling feeling energized. So I feel like I'm I'm feeling better than usual. Uh, the weekend was great. The football was splendid. Gareth Bale is back at Tottenham. Um, but I don't I don't want to start a I don't want to start a conversation there. But I'm, I'm I'm doing good. How about yourself? They won like they won five two. So that's that's big. I was gonna tell you you're gonna say something about one of your local. What's your local team in South Africa, by the way? Uh Budvest Vitz. Yeah, they Lord. RIP. No more. They're no more uh, no, the replaced no. by. Anyway, we don't want to get too much into yeah. that. I was going to say, I, <laughs> I need a thunderstorm here because as I repeat every week, I'm living amidst like these multiple crises. Um, yeah, it, it's it's not the, the best place to be right now. But, you know, and it's also like such a, it, it feels so different from the summer when there was all this mm. energy around like Black Lives Matter uh, where it seemed that people had sort of articulated clearly, you know, what is it we want? We want, like, to defund the police, you know, like, and then a whole bunch of other demands came with that. But somehow we feel, it seems like we're in a funk, um, in the, you know, if you're living in the U.S. especially, and that there's this kind of waiting period um, the, that something's uh, um, about to happen. But in any case, which might be a good segue, Will, Will <laughs> this, is, this is so pre-heard. Will, so what's been in the news? Okay, Sean. Well, what has been in the news is I'm kidding. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. But um, yeah. I mean, you've, it's interesting that you mentioned that there's been this thunderstorm. Um, and I think the the news that's rocked the globe really, and not just the United States, this past weekend was the tragic passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, and as I said, an iconic figure not just in the United States but across the world. And it's a tragic passing because she was an exemplary figure. She was only the second associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court and throughout her career, first as a lawyer and then as a judge, blazed the trail for a lot of women's rights issues to be taken seriously in America. Um, and much as she is a complicated political figure, I think the, the consensus is that she led uh, a very exemplary life as an individual. But her death is also really untimely. Uh, it comes at a moment in the United States when it's just before an election 
And it's not just any U.S. election, but it's arguably the most important election in the post-Cold War period. And now, instead of the concentration of the world being on this upcoming election, the entire national and international spotlight is on Donald Trump, who's made it clear that he intends to replace Bader Ginsburg's vacancy before Saturday. So now the question and the debates and political activities around this Supreme Court. Um, and I guess it's, it's interesting, not only in an American context, but I think uh, generally to reflect on, you know, what the role of courts should be. Um, because you have the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be this judicial body that adjudicates on judicial matters that has so much power and so much importance in American political life that whether or not a judge is appointed to fill a vacancy is as pressing as who becomes the president of that country as a whole. And as I was saying, it's not only important in the United States, but really it's important in a lot of a lot of jurisdictions which which model the United States judiciary system, which is this uh, English common law model, which is in large parts of the global south. It's in South Africa, it's in Kenya, it's in Nigeria, it's in India. And yeah, just it's a moment for reflection on on what do we expect from the judiciary, how much power we give in the judiciary, uh, and especially in the global south. What's interesting, I think, is that in the United, in the United States, it's easy to look at how politicized their apex courts are, how much power is vested in their apex courts and conclude that that probably shouldn't be permitted. But I think that sort of can at the same time conceal the fact that everywhere else we kind of do the same, um, which is to say that uh, we sort of expect that we, we sort of venerate and deify the judiciary because um, in, in, in Africa, especially and in South Africa, especially where we are faced with, with long time problems of, of governance, the courts have played this active role in rolling back the power of the state, telling the states to do its job, so on and so forth. And we get really excited about that. We praise the courts for playing that role, but I think we don't necessarily consider what the excesses of that might be. What happens when you when you vest too much power in your judiciary? And, and what I'd point viewers to is uh, a great interview that we had earlier this year oh, on, yeah. on the website between um, Elisha Kunene and Gautam Bhatia, who's a lawyer in India. Elisha's a lawyer in South Africa. And they, and they asked precisely this question, which is, what are courts for? And they speak about exactly why we should refrain from investing too much power in our courts and and reclaim democratic governance and investing political power in, in ordinary people rather than this, um, you know, highfalutin body of philosopher kings and queens. Uh, you and showed me that tweet. You showed me that tweet. Yeah, tell, tell the audience what that tweet was, which I think I is, think is, is really some, accurate. Um, shame, shame, you know, spare, spare a thought, something for Americans. <laughs> They've lost one of the Ayatollahs. <laughs> um, of course, people are upset by that, but you can see the kind of, I mean, it's a bit of a trite comparison, but it just plays with the idea that the Americans put so much emphasis on these group of people as, as sort of moral arbiters. And they're, by the way, they I think they're appointed for life. So that's what yeah. makes it. I was going to say something quick because we want to move on to something else, which we want to remind viewers of that was in the news. Um, 
if you just take, say, say the case of South Africa, right, you have the chief justice, uh, what's his name, Mukhung, uh, Mukhung, Mukhung, who is like famous for, if he's a moral avatar of the society, the kind of pronouncements that he makes on morality, on religion, it's quite striking, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, the, I think that Ayatollah tweet is, is exactly right because the basic point is that countries shouldn't be governed by this council of elders, these philosopher kings and queens, and they should be governed by the people. Um, but yeah, to, to move on, uh, there's a story, Sean, that you want our viewers to pay attention to, and it's a really concerning story coming out of Sudan. Can you, yeah, what's that about? So basically, I mean, it's just it's a story. The bare facts are that um, five filmmakers were arrested and sentenced by a Sudanese court to like two months in prison. And I, I, just, I sort of want to read this for uh, public disturbance and violating public safety measures. And essentially, it just it sounds like the the police um, and government supporters were like baiting them into engaging in kind of some kind of physical activity. And for that, they were just sent to court. So you can't defend, a, a defendant cannot defend themselves in this criminal court. Neither can any of the other defendants could like, you know, uh, testify in mitigation of any of the other. I mean, it's a really, it's just bias against defendants. Um, but the, why the story is important is like one of the filmmakers happened to be, sorry, one of the people arrested, one of these five people happened to be this filmmaker called um, Hajus um, Kuka. Uh, who some of our readers uh, will know he's made these two beautiful films, uh, Pete's of the Antonov, um, which you can see on our website, Dylan Valley, who's also a filmmaker himself and is on our editorial board. Um, he reviewed this film. Um, uh, I think he said something like, I've never seen something like this in my life. Um, and he also made another film that just came out called Akasha. Um, and the interesting story about this is, uh, you know, he's been exhibited at Venice, at Toronto, um, and earlier this uh, this year, he was invited to join the Academy um, of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which awards the Oscars. This in itself was kind of interesting because the Oscars, the Oscars so white, um, and there was this whole debate about how do you diversify who votes for which films win the awards. And so Hajus and a number of other filmmakers, I think Akino Motoso, who's a, a Nigerian South African filmmaker, they were they were asked to join the Academy. Um, what I find interesting about the whole thing, apart from the fact that, um, you know, sadly, they're going to have to serve the two months. I think I saw recently that they were moved to another prison where they are slightly safer. Um, I think the one thing that I think, uh, two things that I think is interesting about the case is, one, this was supposed to be like the Sudanese government that came to power after the overthrow of Omar al-Bashir and was supposed to be different. Um, but what we're learning about this, and we've written a bunch about this on the website, is that it looks like what initially when the protest started, like something that would be a rapid change in Sudan could be quite drawn out. And, and it's going to take a while for like this, for the remnants of the old way of doing things to catch up to this new environment in which people mm. have the right to free um, political expression. And I think the other thing that's very, that's also quite interesting um, is the, the way that filmmakers globally have responded. Um, to bring, you know, to bring light to the situation. And I could, you know, you could just Google like a piece, there's a great piece in the Washington Post about this, the, the whole idea of this happening. Uh, we've done some tweeting about it, um, a range of organizations, the Toronto Film Festival did. I saw earlier today that the the Academy itself uh, put out a tweet about Hajuza's case. So we're hoping, you know, something happens quickly about it, but mm -hmm. I want to 
I want to impress on people, keep up the pressure, tweet at the Sudanese government, tweet at their embassies, tweet at the consulate, look up on Twitter, like who are the public representatives and tweet at them, please. Yeah. Um, let me, yeah, sorry for that. Like we, we, we had a little glitch there. Um, but you you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and on our website, africasacountry.com. Um, and all our work is published under a Creative Commons license. So you should also feel free to repost it. You're watching Africa's a Country Talk. I'm Sean Jacobs. Uh, my co-host is uh, uh, Will Soki. So let's move on. We have our first guest on today. We have two sets of guests. We don't go away. We are going to talk about the legacy of uh, Kwame Nkrumah with two wonderful guests coming up late in the program. But first up, we just wanted to chat with um, one of our own, um, who is uh, Grief Chelwa, who's one of our contributing editors. Um, and yeah, Grief is here. Grief's been here before. I don't know if you remember Grief. <laughs> Grief was here, quite a lively guest. It's um, good to have you back, Grieve. Good to have you back. <laughs> how are you two gents doing? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Doing okay. We talked we talk some heavy, heavy topics already. We don't want to ask Grieve who his football team is in, in <laughs> that everybody talks about and how they're doing. I think it's Arsenal. I hope not. No, I told you I decolonized myself, Sean. <laughs> uh, I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> It's Cape Town City and City of Lusaka. Those are my teams, man. Oh, Grief, Grief pulled that one. That was that was good. Grief just, <laughs> Grief just made us feel like, like we are not decolonized. <laughs> he supports City of Cape Town. I mean, how decolonized is he really? Anyway, Grief, um, you're here to talk to us about a new project that we're doing on decolonizing and sifting public narratives around climate justice tax justice and, ex and ex um, extractors in, in African spaces. We also want to tell our viewers, because we're, we're upfront about these things, this, the Climate Media Project is generously funded, and we're very happy for this, by the Africa Regional Office um, of Open Society Foundation. We thank them for being our partners in this. Um, Grieve, how, how would you describe to, to viewers, like, what are we trying to do with this project? Because there's a lot of writing about the climate, but what is it specifically that we're trying to do with this? Uh, man, thanks a lot, Sean, and thanks for having me on this program. Uh, so, I mean, generally what we're trying to do, as you've said, I mean, there's a lot that's been written about uh, climate problem, about tax issues, about extractive industries uh, generally across the world and uh, even specifically on Africa. What we're trying to do with this project is really to go a little bit deeper, right? So the general idea, the first instance is we're talking about decolonization. So how do we decolonize discussions about climate justice? about uh, sort of extractive industries, about tax issues, how do we center African narratives and African ways, you know, like African analysis about these kinds of things. So we're, going to, we're trying to go a little bit deeper. Everybody agrees there's a problem. Uh, climate change is a problem. That is certainly not up for debate, but we have solutions on the table. And what we're trying to do in this project is essentially try to say, can we critically engage with these solutions, right? Can we critically engage with this solution? Uh, for example, one of our first first pieces that went up yesterday by Keston Perry uh, was generally just trying to say, you know, some climate initiatives that are being sort of coming out of the U.S. and that are supposed to have an impact on Africa, uh, pretty much uh, replicating imperialism, you know, pretty much replicating and reinforcing capitalism. So that's the kind of kind of critical discourses that we're trying to do. We're really trying to interrogate what seem like obvious solutions, 
but then these obvious solutions always have very sort of interesting types of uh, uh, processes. So that's what we're trying to do with this particular series of uh, posts. Nice. So, so Keston Perry's piece, everyone should go read it. It's fantastic. And, and we plan more of these pieces, right? Uh, and I think we also want to do a takeover of the live stream show sometime later this fall. Can you say more about that, Grief? Uh, yeah, I think so. The general idea is, for example, Keston wrote what I think is an incredibly important piece, an incredibly important intervention, right? Uh, and what we would like him to do, obviously, is to one day show up on the live stream and we have a chat with him, right, about his piece. And we sort of ask him, what possessed you to write this piece? What sort of upset you? What sort of got you moved to write an 800-word piece on climate imperialism and the U.S. elections, you know? What was the motivation? Where do you want this conversation to go? Who are you speaking to when you write this? From what perspective are you writing? So really just sort of, we've, we've got the writers, but we always want to go inside their heads and have them explain mm -hmm. to us why they bother to write these things in the first place. And so we're we going to take over the live stream uh, uh, platform in a couple of months time, and then we will be talking to a lot of our, our guests. And the yeah. next piece, just quickly before we move on to like what the next phase of this project will be, the next piece, um, just to give viewers like a, like a little uh, taste will be by Olufemi Otaiwo, uh, who is a philosopher at George Georgetown, I think. I might be getting it is, this wrong. Yeah, it's, that's yeah. right, yeah. At Georgetown. Yeah, and he's got a piece. Well, 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 is that approvingly. Sorry? Yeah, I'm a big fan. I'm a big <laughs> fan. I'm a big fan of Femi. Oh, okay, that's nice. I'll, I'll tell Femi that. Uh, so basically, it's in the same tradition where, you know, he's interrogating a climate change solution, which is not controversial, but tends to be controversialized by, for example, Northern activists, whereas it might not seem so controversial for Global South activists. So this is the kind of stuff that we are trying to really bring to the fore, that their perspectives, their Southern perspectives on solutions to climate change, their Southern perspectives on solutions to extractive industries, their, climate, uh, their sort of Southern perspectives on issues to do with tax, right? We have nuanced perspectives, and we want to bring these perspectives to bear on this particular series. That's the general thrust. Yeah. And so, as I said, the the we're sort of alluding, we have kind of like three phases to the whole thing. And the phase one is these, you know, this kind of set of articles, uh, boarding up the debate, bringing in all these these other voices, particularly African voices. The next phase, we plan to make a film. Yeah, we plan to make a film. I've always wanted to make a film, Sean, and then Sean came to me and he said, that's blind. What are you going to make a film about? And then I said, can I make this film about City of Lusaka, my darling football club? <laughs> so, yeah, the general idea... Can I just say as you move on? I've never <laughs> club. And I do know something about Dublin football, but I'm just messing with you. Maybe there needs to be a film then. Maybe there needs to be a film about this team that no one's heard of. No, it's only you guys who are so not decolonized. Who, about everybody who, who anybody has said about us. Uh, but yeah, so we're trying to make a film. Really what we're trying to hone into is this discussion about extractive industries. As you know, the history of Africa is a history of natural resource exploitation, extractive industry exploitation. It's a history of oil, gold, all these kinds of things. What we're trying, And then in that history, there's a whole thesis about the resource curse. Right, that just having resources is a curse in and of itself. What we want to do is to interrogate this particular hypothesis in, in film, in documentary mm -hmm. form. Uh, and uh, we're still trying to think how we're going to do this. And we've got like a bunch of ideas about how we're going to do it. We speak to a bunch of interesting people to do it. We'll go shoot in very interesting places. But this is a general thrust of the film, 
right? I don't want to call it a film, you know, then I feel like that's a way. I mean, the whole idea is not to make like something that is inaccessible that people can't see. We want to make this film publicly available. Of course, we, you know, we want it to be seen on, on like streaming platforms. So it's a short film, before <laughs> we be modest. Um, but we, because, we want to say something with it. We want to interview yeah. people, you know, like make something very visually uh, arresting. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, the important thing, the important yeah, thing about ahead. this project is, is that, I mean, the third phase, and this relates, I guess, is probably what informs this entire project, is that we want to amplify the voices of Africans and the front lines of struggles around climate and tax justice. You're right. I think you put it very well. I mean, there's obviously, you know, uh, believe it or not, the one billion of us also have views on this thing, very strong views, very, you know, nuanced views, very complicated views. And this entire project is just trying to bring all these views to bear in a way that sort of we allow, we talk to each other, but we also speak to the rest of the world about these kinds of things. So you're very right, Will, you hit the, the nail on the head. Yeah. And just, just, I'll just quickly add to this, the third phase, uh, we will we will work with, we'll try to amplify the voices of these. So in this first phase, we getting more so like public intellectuals writing. In the third phase, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, amplify the voices of people working um, in these various uh, social movements. You know, we're kind of doing some of this work already. Mm -hmm trying to bring some of that uh, work to the front. And we've done that, if you look at the site, we've done it with other projects where we've looked at, um, uh, although we, we, we could have done more on particularly social movements in places like Tanzania, um, South Africa, but we want to bring that out more on a continental level. Grief, I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna ask you like one other question about this, which I'm hoping you will, uh, you, you won't be afraid to answer it. What do, you, what, do you, what do you make of sort of the Green New Deal? Because the Green New Deal, which is a US initiative, and there's, there's a lot of hype around it. I mean, it came from Alexandro Ocasio-Cortez, who's seen as on the left in the US. She partnered with um, Ed Markey, who is uh, uh, from Massachusetts, who's a much older um, public representative in the US House, um, to push this thing, to make it happen. All these American political candidates, they signed up to it, the ones who wanted to be Democratic, not Republican, but the ones who run for the Democratic um, uh, nomination. I think Joe Biden, I'm not sure if he's a signatory, but they all seem to say, you know, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, they all said they for it. What do you, how, I mean, what, what do you make of, of, of this? Because in America, people are very excited about it. Like if you watch it from like, you know, this from Southern Africa. I mean, so I think this is why the series that we're doing is so important. Because for example, before I read Keston Perry's essay, I was rather sort of indifferent. I mean, I was partial towards it. I'm still partial towards it as an idea, as, an, as a principle. But there are the nuts and bolts of it. And this is, I think, what we want to do with this series. Just get into the nuts and bolts and sort of figure out who's going to finance the Green New Deal. Right. Who's going to finance certain aspects of it. And when you dig deeper, for example, at least that's what I learned from Keston's essay, right? You find that Wall Street banks, uh, you know, the Goldman Sachs, because now it's very, uh, you know, sexy to do some, to be seen to be part of these kinds of things. So Goldman Sachs might be financing some aspects of the Green New Deal. Uh, you know, the, the good old uh, conglomerates, the old multinationals that have caused so much damage, either in terms of labor or in terms of the environment, are now switching and, and being a part of the Green New Deal. So I think the, the basic point is, as an idea, it's great. But what we ought to think about and worry about are the nuts and bolts of it. And I think this is what some of our, this is what our series is going to be doing, right? Getting these sort of uncontroversial ideas that most people are partial to and trying to say, what does this really mean for uh, financialization? What does this really mean for labor? 
you know, it's not, it's not, a, it's, it's not great if we have a green new deal that requires lithium batteries, but the lithium is sourced from, you know, Bolivia, and then there's all sorts of bad things happening there, right? Then we have to really bring all those issues to the table. So, Sean, that's a very complicated way of saying it's complicated. This is what we're going to do with our series. This is exactly why we are, we are you know, we are like uh, pulling out our hairs with this series. This is what we're trying. These are kind of conversations we want to spark in people, right? But we want to take non-controversial ideas, but go underneath so that right. go deep and so figure what so, so one 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 last question. It's just a quick question. Uh, Oxfam released yesterday that the the world's top one percent wealthiest countries are responsible for two thirds of global pollution. What's your hardest take on that? I, I think we've always known that, right? Well, I mean, we've always known. I mean, uh, you know, the global South Africa in general has hardly industrialized, so we haven't added anything to the carbon footprint. So I'm, I'm not very surprised. And I think, and there's some ethical issues there, right? There's some very complicated ethical issues uh, that one has to deal with. But I think it's not surprising, Will, that uh, the Global North is so responsible for all this carbon, is incredibly responsible for all this uh, climate change that's going on. Uh, but then that presents very interesting ethical challenges. And I think some of the writers in the series I think uh, the philosopher Olufemi Otaiwo, you know, these are some of the issues that they'll be dealing with, trying to make us sort of figure out what does this really mean? What does this mean for development? What does this really mean for climate justice issues? What does this really mean for climate solutions? I mean, the first thing that this means to me, Will, is uh, the global north should really shut up, you know, when it comes to... <laughs> 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 the global north, the global north. Yeah. Shut up about <laughs> yeah, so folks like Sean, Sean, you should not lead the discussion. About <laughs> You've already done damage. Okay, today, right. twice now, first, Guga said that I'm not decolonized, <laughs> and you called me the global north. You are. I'm going to take these things in stride. Anyway, there, oh, look at look at world. Okay, there's a question on the on the on the YouTube channel. I'm not sure if we can answer this question right now, but Maybe we can sort of be we're going to try. It's by Lee Wengraf asking, saying that the project sounds amazing. Do you know which regions, which regions you might look at in particular for the film? Ah, interesting. So hi Lee. Uh, Lee is uh, is a friend of the site as Def, well as uh, most Def, most Def. Shout out to Lee. Yeah, that's right. A friend of uh, I, I I read I read the book. I mean, excellent book. Uh, so we haven't, you know, we haven't really thought deeply about that, but we're taking ideas. So uh, if Lee has ideas, please like send them our way. Uh, I mean, we obviously, I mean, when you think about extractives, right? Extractives are really, uh, well, very heavily represented across the continent. You know, there's gas or oil, gas in Mozambique. There's gas or oil somewhere in Tanzania and Uganda. There's oil obviously in West Africa. There's some stuff in Angola. You know, there's some stuff somewhere in Central Africa. So really, we're spot for choice, you know, in, in that way. But we haven't really sort of narrowed down in a particular region. We might just do the whole thing, or maybe we might do bits and pieces. But we're, we're open for ideas. We're really open for ideas. I think of that, we should probably, we don't want to keep Grievia too long. We, I, I'm, this project is for yeah, me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Grievia. We, 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 we think we're sort of feeling our way through it. And I think we're trying to bring really um, exciting views of people to the fore. Um, so yeah, we want to, um, oh, somebody just, somebody, somebody 100%, <laughs> the global North should shut up. I, I need that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's Takondwa, you know, so 
I think Takondo is uh, broadcasting from Durban. <laughs> Hi, Takondo. Take on underscore Dua. I think she's. I think I'm on the attack today, bro. I'm on the attack. <laughs> Any, yeah, anyway, Sean, enough from you. Uh, Green, thank, <laughs> thank you so much for, for coming on to the show. Um, and we look forward to seeing what happens with this project. And it sounds exciting. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And uh, good luck the rest of the show. I can't wait to. Brother, it's good having you. Excellent. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks, Grieve. Uh, and finally, on to our next segment of the show. Uh, yesterday was the 21st of September. And the 21st of September is significant not only because everyone remembers the Earth, Wind and Fire song once a year, but because um, <laughs> it was also the birthday of Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, and Nkrumah was born in 1909 in a small village called Nkrofu on the Gold Coast of then colonial Ghana. And at midnight on the 6th of March, 1957, Nkrumah famously took to the stage in Accra to announce the independence of the Gold Coast, renamed Ghana in homage to the ancient West African empire. In his speech, Nkrumah declared that 1957 marked the birth of a new Africa, ready to fight its own battles and to show after all that the black man is capable of managing his own affairs. In his view, the decades-long struggle for Ghanaian independence was only one battle in the broader struggle for African emancipation. Our independence, Nkrumah famously maintained, is meaningless unless it is linked up with the total liberation of the African continent. Ghana was the first African country south of the Sahara to win its independence and was previously colonized by not-so-great Britain. And three years after achieving that, Nkrumah had promoted himself to president of Ghana, a post he held until 1966, when his enemies in the army overthrew him as Euro-American forces, as they usually do, looked the other way. In Ghana, his ideas and memory were largely marginalized in the 1970s as its government made a rightward turn. He died in Romania in 1972, following his exile in Secutures, Guinea. But Nkrumah is making a comeback. Young people want to return to the source. They want to return to Nkrumah. Whether it's in party politics, think of the Economic Fighters League, a party in Ghana, but also in how Ghanaians think about the role of the state and about development, or about Ghana's place in the world, and indeed Africa's place in the world. So our guests joining us now are Ben Talton. Uh, ben is a historian of Africa. He wrote a book about post-colonial Ghanaian politics called The Politics of Social Change in Ghana, The Konkumba Struggle for Political Equality. He is a native of Harlem in New York City, which was once a hotbed of pan-Africanist organizing of the kind promoted by Nkrumah. And his latest book, In the Land of Plenty, Mickey Leland in Africa and American Politics, tells a story of U.S. congressman whose life was the embodiment of Pan-African politics. Our other guest is Anakwa Domina, who is a books editor at Africa's a Country and a member of New Yorker, the New Yorker magazine's editorial staff. Originally from Ghana, his reporting and cultural criticism focuses on African politics, the lives of black, and black immigrants around the world, and the most important subject of all, soccer. So uh, thank you, thank you guys for, for being on the show today. Um, it's, it's awesome to have you here. Uh, we, we're looking forward to the rest of the program with you guys. Um, so, so then to to jump to jump straight into it, um, you know Kwame Nkrumah. He's he's such a, a towering figure 
of of post-colonial history and it's it's hard to figure out the best place to start with understanding his legacy and his political thought but i suppose one place to start is to just ask you guys to to place him in historical context so the mid-20th century is this period of massive transformation the winds of change are, are blowing at at gale force speed so to speak and and kwame nkrumah ends up as this one person who who bursts onto the scene and and obviously not by himself but with with many other contemporaries who are as gigantic so so how do we place him in historical context who is he and how does he come into the scene can we can we start off with that introduction? That was awesome. I appreciate that. That was that was very cool. Very well done. Harlem Thank part. you very much. Yeah. Harlem part. I know. I'm in I'm in Brooklyn though. I, cl I claim Harlem. I claim Brooklyn too. That was that was awesome. <laughs> you claim but all of New York. But if I could jump in, uh, Anakwa could 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 could, uh, could stop me anytime he wants. But it's that I'll, we can even debate that framing that you gave in the beginning of Kwame Nkrumah. It. it, it it's the it's the Kwame Nkrumah that I had when I first went to Ghana in 1999. You know, this champion of independence bursts on the scene, uh, the visionary Pan Africanist, uh, and then there's this tragic demise. Without getting into some of the nitty gritty, and so when I arrived in Ghana in 1999, I'm 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 seeing Kwame Nkrumah in this way, and then I encounter all these debates and arguments. I'm like, wow, people don't just love Kwame Nkrumah. <laughs> And I'm hanging out with people whose whose families were destroyed by Kwame Nkrumah, who who really despised the man, and it blew me away. Coming from the diaspora, coming from the United States, where where he was celebrated, particularly by people of 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 my generation's parents, who were naming their kids Kwame, even though they weren't born on the proper day, <laughs> you know. So we we could even th that framing is the popular framing, but then the meat on the bones is quite is quite different. So right? If you, if you, I know I'm not going to jump in, but just to yeah. stay with a second with you, when you say like the meat on the bones, can you just like give a give 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 a give a flavor of the meat on the bones? Well, just look. Um, so the meat on the bones is thinking of this vision that Nkrumah and the CPP had in the second half of the 1950s, particularly 57 to say like 60 where we're building a model post-colonial state, truly self-determined, truly independent, fighting against neo-imperialism, fighting against uh, capitalism, put the two together, right? Uh, Self-determination for individual and for the state. That, and then also modeling Egypt, where now independent Ghana is gonna be the defender and champion of sovereignty throughout Africa. But then suddenly we get into 61, 62, 63, and we're battling forces from without and from within, and Ghana becomes this police state. And I think, you see, Nkrumah not really trusting his own people. And that's the Nkrumah we have to grapple with, where he saw himself as the only one who could accomplish that. Now, I'm, I'm sympathetic because neo-imperialism and capitalism are real enemies of the people, right? So, uh, and seeing himself as the only one who can do that. But then the police state, is really when things get problematic. Preventive Detention Act, uh, where anyone who criticizes the state, you know, who we think will be against the state or be against the regime, and then Nkrumah is the state, right, can be arrested. And those are the people who, who are, many of them are still alive and have uh, memories of those times that create this fraught environment and kind of complicate Nkrumah's legacy.
great. But you also, yeah. I mean, that's that's such a yeah, that's that's a that's a great way to get into this an discussion. Aqua, aqua, um, an aqua, yeah, an aqua. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, no. I was gonna, I was going to say that I think it's 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 so interesting you say that too because you know being um, born and raised in Ghana, Nkrumah sort of existed as this um, this figure, this national figure, but um, someone that um, I didn't necessarily get any too much concrete information on. You know, I come right. move here and. Um, I to America, and it's it's here that I I see this sort of like this huge interest in Pan Africanism, and you know people people will get excited to um, hear that I'm from Ghana. Uh, someone I, I ran into on the street who was an alum of uh, Lincoln University just gave me a hug, you know, <laughs> because I was from Ghana. And so I started to look into Nkrumah, and and just like you said, there's this progression of this is this wonderful guy, this is this guy who's done all of these great things, but you get to Nkrumah in the late 60s and particularly i think for me that the one of the saddest thing was reading um dark days uh in in ghana um and his letters from conakry where you see that um in fact he really has this idea that he is the only one who can make any change and it seems a betrayal of the Nkrumah who was an organizer um you know back in in, in hidden the streets and Parliament in Philly and is the one who broke away from the UGCC and sort of had this radical project. Um, and I was recently reading this um, book by uh, Grace Lee Boggs, uh, who is this famous um, organizer affiliated with CLR James and that connection. And she mentions that when she and her husband visited Nkrumah in Conakry, Nkrumah has said that he wishes that they had gotten married because with her ruling sort of, uh, the East being Chinese and him ruling Africa, they could have uh, some sort of monarchical state or control of the world. And so you you get the sense that Nkrumah had kind of lost it towards the end almost. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what is what is important in the, the legacy of Nkrumah that we see from the EFF today, which broke away from the CPP, interestingly, the same mm -hmm. way that the CPP broke away from the UGCC is that focus of um, real economic, structural economic change um, and we get back to Nkrumah of this sort of neocolonial analysis. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, I mean that's that's fascinating. It's it's fascinating to begin by by you know by problematizing the figure and and looking at the ways in which they were they were tragic heroes in in many ways. Uh, but it it sort of makes me return to the question of how do we understand them in that historical context? Because when we think of the the post colonial period. It was also a period running concurrently with the Cold War. Yeah. And it was this time globally of mass suspicion and paranoia. And so you wonder as these leaders take stewardship of trying to, to usher the countries that they're from into a new era of trying to build a new world, they're, to paraphrase Marx, they're doing it in circumstances not of their own choosing. So, so yeah, let's let's go back to to trying to place them into that historical context. I mean, right. what were they trying to accomplish, or what what was Nkrumah trying to accomplish when when Ghana became independent in 1957? Uh, there's, I mean, there's a book that I've been <laughs> raving about throughout this entire year, which is called World Making After Empire by mm -hmm. uh, Adam Getachew, uh, and and was was his project merely an anti-colonial nationalist project? Did he just want independence for for Ghana? What well, yeah, what was what was his deal? 
I'll jump in very quickly. I think it's it's important to put him in, in that broader context because uh, there are these broader forces going on, um, the Cold War, of course. And I see Nkrumah as being very clear-eyed about the challenges that the Gold Coast and then Ghana was, was facing, considering it was relying basically on cocoa and a little gold at the time, understanding uh, that uh, Europeans were very much interested in post-colonial exploitation. So his, he, he, he understood their economic and political weaknesses. And so this effort to diversify the economy as rapidly as possible to achieve this socialist state, a self-determined and independent state, uh, that was visionary and it was brave and it was it was amazing and and he accomplished a great deal in a short period of time. You think about uh, creating a Kosombo Dam, which was supposed to make Ghana independent in terms of electricity, and then we're going to use that electricity to to uh, turn our bauxite into aluminum, so make it to to export that, but then you run into challenges of finance. We don't have capital to do that. So we reach out to the Soviets, ultimately we reach out to the Americans and the, and the Brits. So as he struggled to create this independent state, economically independent state, the irony is that he's having to rely on capital from the outside. So there's this catch 22, right? And we see this in other states. It's important to say, this is not just a, wasn't just a Ghanaian problem. Mm-hmm. Most post-colonial African countries are facing the same, the same challenge, right? Of how do we develop rapidly without capital? You, you, you can't do it. But then what are the downsides of, of rapid development is that there was this, I think, and I don't want to act like I'm just criticizing him at, at all fronts, but there was this neglect of the rural areas. When you focus on uh, industrial development, right. when a majority of your population, and we can get into a conversation about Nereri and how you know he did the opposite of focusing on agriculture. Mm. You're not really, it's a people-centered economy that's not really centered on the people as they are. So there's these upsides and downsides to the ways that he approached it. But I think this broader global Cold War post-colonial context is very, very important. He didn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, how many one-party states emerged in the 1960s, right? So he's not alone in that. Right. Mm. And I think to add to that too, right, he, you know, when he on the scene, um, there is the UG he's broken away from, but there are also people who are for coming from the Aborigines Rights Protection Society. It's essentially, I'm saying that there are people who, but whether uh, royalty or people who have um, vested interest in a connection to um, the, the European colonial state um, and so Nkrumah arrives on this scene and they think, wait a minute, you know, we are, the, we, we do want some sort of independence, but not with this radical guy who is sort of going to cut off um, and come up with this new economic system. We actually like the way certain things are run. Nkrumah was, you know, very sort of, uh, they didn't indulge the chiefs too much, let's say, and that was an issue for some people as well. And so there, there are those factors as well. And I think that we, we tend to not think about um, being caught between those two forces in that moment in time. Um, but he certainly was a product of, as you said, this kind of uh, Cold War moment where his mentors are uh, CLR and uh, Padmore, who's, you know, who's, was formerly with, uh, formerly in Russia, based, based out of the Kremlin, right? But who's then taken all of these ideas uh, that we're thinking about um, uh, getting past the, the capitalist state, who's 
thinking about what is it like in this moment, uh, this world making moment to make an African and, and black centered states. And so he is caught between these two uh, places and is compelled to somehow um, make uh, a, a new society that, uh, that appeals to, or that can work with people from different interests uh, who are sort of colliding on him in that one moment. Can I, can I, I want to add to that. I think uh, this, um, what he built out is, is actually pretty amazing. And, and the idea of this opposition that he had uh, from the Ashanti region in particular, but also in the East among the Eves, because they straddled the Togo-Ghana border. They were originally part of Transvolta Togoland. Mm -hmm. So they had an opportunity to join at Independence 56, to join with Togo. And they took a vote and the Eves were out, outnumbered and majority voted to stay with and become part of Ghana. Right, but you have this community that's disgruntled. They feel like we're giving up the British, but now we're gaining the CPP as our oppressor. And that liberation movement lives on today, the Togoland Liberation Movement. They want to join with, with Togo. And there's still some disgruntled in, in, the Ashanti, in the Ashanti region as well. So there's opposition throughout the country. But what I think is amazing, and I think this is part of his legacy today, he succeeded in creating an integrated state. There is such thing as being Ghanaian. Right. Is it that they're Ghanaians on the ground identify themselves as Ghanaians in a particular way that I it's not unique on the continent, but it certainly stands out. Right. If, if you're in the north, if you're in the south and the east, if you're uh, uh, even in even in the Volta region, you know, these new regions mess me up, man. They just changed all the regions. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm still trying to memorize these new regions. But you go there and there's this sense of pride in being Ghanaian. There's this idea that there is such thing as being Ghanaian. And it's not to say that every election has gone off swimmingly and without ethnic strife or conflict, but the success of Ghana's, the relative success of Ghana's democracy since this fourth Republic, 1992, a lot of that has to do with what Nkrumah and the CPP built in the 50s and early 60s, right? It's a different constitution, but this integrated state of Ghana, this idea of being Ghana, Ghanaian, I think that's a strong part of Nkrumah's legacy and it's a very important part. Before we move on to the present, there was, there was something I think Anakwa said that I thought was interesting, this kind of tension between this sort of figure who is studying in America and who comes back, well, who, I think he also briefly lives in London. Like with you know with with these kind of so if you want like a sort of cosmopolitan left Padmore, James, um, I think even the South African writer Peter Abrams. So when he comes back, he thinks I, I'm I'm bringing this Pan African vision and all these people with all these knowledge knowledges or knowledge, they can help me build this new place. But I but this is I, I you know when you think about it, there's also then these local sets of elites. Not, I mean, some sometimes they straddle local, global, mm. but they are also they also have their vision for Ghana at this point, and they're like, who's this guy bringing in all these people? Uh, not not because they you know from the Caribbean or 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 they're from the diaspora, but they just kind of like why why is it that he's trying to impose this model on us that is not kind of homegrown? I, I mean, I can imagine that there are these kind of tensions. So, just one other quick related question to that is. It really true that in the diaspora, the opposition to Nkrumah, and, and I suppose then what becomes like his inheritors, which is the, the, 
the party of Rawlings. I, I'm, a, you know, for want of a better word. I like that you both are shaking your heads because <laughs> with kind of like who's the inheritor of that? Well, firstly, deal with me just quickly with the opposition. Who is the opposition to Nkrumah and, and and the way we judge them? Because you said he clamps down, it becomes a police state, but somehow we still have some kind of sympathy for him. Well, who is who locally is a is is opposing him? And I'm saying it more in terms of sort of like parliamentary politics, this sort of like social movements that think of themselves in this new modern nation state. Like, who are these people and why are we judging them so harshly? And then related to that, then who becomes like the inheritors of his kind of legacy in Ghana? Hmm. We're both afraid of that question. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think I think that I think Ben talked about it, sort of like the Ashanti Kingdom specifically. So if you can speak more on that, and then we can broaden out from there. So initially, the debate on what Ghana is going to be, and is it going to be a federated state or not, and the fear was that among the the, uh, the Ashanti, in particular, and Ewe had their concern. Ewe had their concerns as well, is that all the resources from the, uh, what became the Ashanti region, particularly the gold in particular, uh, I'm sorry, the cocoa in particular, but also also gold, that was just trickled down to Accra and they would not benefit from that. And they were very, very skeptical of the, of the state that Nkrumah was going to build. And so many of them actually were wanted to slow down on this process of independent, independence until they can work that out. The other question was, the, the, the as Anakwa was saying, the, the position of the chiefs where Nkrumah was concerned with diminishing the power of the chiefs, diminishing the power of eth ethnic affiliation so that we can create Ghanaian citizens who have a national identity as opposed to a local identity. So these were many of the debates that were, were, were going on in 55, 56, and even into 57, until we, 58, until we create the, the one party system was about the power of the different regions and whether they could really hold on to their political power and their economic resources, not just have it assumed by the executive power, which comes in 1960 when we build the Ghanaian Republic. And we can get into the the current, this, this other question, I'll let Anakwa jump in, but this question of who inherits uh, the CPP. Uh, the CPP today would say that they inherit the mantle of Nkrumah, although I think if Nkrumah came back and he looked at Ghana, he would not appreciate this neoliberal turn, this radical neoliberal turn. There really are no socialists mm -hmm. in Ghana. I think the economic freedom fighters would say they are, they are the so they are the inheritors of Nkrumah. But what Nkrumah was very jealously protecting the state against was a neoliberal turn and the influence of the capitalists, mainly United States, and the former imperialists, Britain, having control of them economically. We see these agreements being made between the United States and, and Ghana that are very scary. The U.S.-Ghana military agreement was last year, very scary. I think Nkrumah would be shocked and he would be very shocked at the neoliberal turn. I'll, he wouldn't, because the NDC and the NPP both are neoliberal political parties. They have, there's nothing socialist about them. Yeah, it, interesting you mentioned the military uh, deal because I was going to say, you know, putting aside the issues of ethnicity or ethnic difference, you know, there was a kind of um, class of civil servants or people who, again, under the, under the colonial administrations, had been um, working their way up or, or people who had acquired wealth or people who have a vested interest. And here comes this guy who is claiming to just, you know, 
fresh, something that is different, something that is divorced from this. And I think that, you know, Nkrumah did a good job of trying to keep expertise and trying to keep people. He knew that we, we there was a lack of people. There was a need to build a university and quickly educate people. And this is how we end up having, you know, uh, people like uh, Maya Angelou, um, you know, et cetera, coming to teach um, in the universities. But there is also this, uh, a class of elites and people who are who have a vested interest in not being pushed aside by Nkrumah. So there's that uh, as well. And I think that that is not too different from um, looking at Ghana today, because it, 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 it comes back to a question of, you know, whether there's a political party or there's a there's a there's a project in which we go back um, to, I guess, the original sin, uh, which Ben points at of of thinking about including all of the rural people, mm. everyone in Ghana versus whether it's about, mm. we keep on inheriting this state and we figure out um, how we can benefit from the, the arrangements and which, what little we can dole out to people. You know, those are, those, that is what it has become. But with Nkrumah, I was thinking of maybe this is the opportunity to sort of like expand things and that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Sean, you were asking about- so, No, go ahead, Will, go ahead. Oh, uh, I just wanted to, to ask to bring in an audience question. Uh, speaking of, of Ghana today, there's a there's a question from Zachary Rosen, who is uh, a friend of the site, a contributor to the site. And can I just recognize probably our longest standing viewer uh, alongside a few others of this of this program. Um, but Zach asks, how successful has Samia Nkrumah been in leveraging the Nkrumah legacy besides simply being elected to parliament? How well does it resonate for her and what has her impact been? Hmm. You, you got them on the spot there, Zach. Well, can I, can I, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can take a stab at being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I would credit her with resurrecting the CPP, I think. She really helped bring back Nkrumism, the idea of Nkrumah's socialist philosophy, his brand of African socialism, back to mainstream party politics in in Ghana. The problem is is that this strange relationship, as I understand it, between the CPP and the NDC, where there are members of the NDC who are claimed to be members of the CPP, but in fact aren't really CPP. None of them are really socialist. But she was she had a, a nice run and she was elected to parliament bringing back Nkrumism, bringing back the CPP. But then when she ran for, I, I can't tell you the year, when she ran for, ran for flag bearer of the, of the party, you know what year that was? And she lost. I think it was 20, well, never mind. But around 2012, yeah. Yeah, and she lost. And then so then her star mm-hmm. began to, this, this began to descend yeah. from there. But she's, she's very active on the ground and trying to keep the, the legacy of Nkrumah around. I think she's building a center. It's not the uh, Kwame Nkrumah Ideological Institute <laughs> that, he, <laughs> that, he, that he built, but it is the center for the legacy of Kwame Nkrumah. It might be an ideological institute. That was very interesting. She got elected in, uh, in uh, 2012. 2012, right. But she lost the race to be flag bearer of the party. And that, I, as I see it, that, there's a shift. So, so I have never really I been in her presence. I'm aware that both of you, have, I'm aware that both of you and particularly Nakwa has to go. So I want to I, I want to ask this because I know if we don't ask this, and it's a great piece on the site right now by Kirsty uh, Quartang on this whole kind of idea of Ghana as as this kind of you know home of Pan Africanism and attracting uh, you know 
people who are interested in the idea, they sort of identify with Ghana. And, and her big argument is, well, if Ghana is Pan-African, then Ghana should be Pan-African. Pan-African should, Pan-Africanism should begin at home. But here's the question I quickly want to ask, um, and I don't want to be long. Um, and this relates to the, to. can you say just quickly about Nkrumah and the diaspora? I think Ben has sort of alluded to this, that kind of, this kind of, you know, how Nkrumah is viewed outside Ghana, and particularly in sort of, if you want the bl global black world. Um, I'm curious, like how you think about this, the project of the year of return, which is the, mm. if you want sort of the MPP program and, you know, one could argue, and I think Anako was alluding to that, Nkrumah as the first, the originator of the, of the year of return and that the current government is merely, I would suppose, you know, what do they call it now? You're stealing my intellectual property. There's all these fights on Twitter that the current government just stole that idea from, from something that Nkrumah did already, as you said, my Angelou, mm. Uh, you know, um, a whole bunch of Af great mm -hmm. African and political mm -hmm. leaders, lawyers, Paulie Murray, all these people went to Ghana and they went to live there. Mm -hmm. So can you can you say a little bit about that politics? Because now we're in this new moment with a new kind of year return. The threat of Ben's, Ben's thought, is this just like a neoliberal version of year of return? Or am I being, am I being too rough on, on the current year of return? Mm -hmm. Which, just for people who don't know, this is at every, around Christmas time, I think since last year, this is, COVID I think may, may put a spanner mm -hmm. in the but um, large uh, groups of people, particularly from the United States, uh, lots of celebrities go, and I think to a lesser extent from Europe, converge on Ghana around Christmas. Um, you know, it sounds like a great, joyous affair. I'd like to be there, the parties look great, uh, but in the largest scheme of things, how do we judge, is this, is this in Kuma's year of return, or is, or is it is it too is it harsh to is say this is this Nkrumah's legacy you're asking is this and the idea of uh, Ghana as the gateway to the diaspora and yeah. the gateway to Africa mm. at the same time, um, Anakwa, you you want to you want to take the first step? <laughs> I, I think we can say, I don't know if this is enough time to, to I know we can like address this question. <laughs> yeah, we, can, um, we don't have to go I, to the question. You you're free to answer. I know you got to run somewhere, but if you want to answer, it I'm going to stick around and answer this question. I'm not leaving. Yeah. Into the <laughs> question. No, I settle this. Um, yeah, I'm gonna. I, I think I'm gonna roll this into into the previous question about uh, Samia. And I was gonna say that I think Samia's uh, presence alone uh, had a, a big impact. I think in terms of just the the two party system that we currently have is um, is we we can't. Um, that is it's, not it's, it's either your uh, NDC or NPP, and that's about it. But I think her presence for the first time was um, allowing people to think about issues differently. They, they were talking about policies, right? Rather than um, are we going to have um, this guaranteed vote or this ethnicity behind, behind us, et cetera. And so um, I think just for the mere sake of that, and I, and I don't know that there's a direct connection, but it's probably why the EFF comes about, right? That, because mm -hmm. there's this sense that the old CPP has been complacent and these young people uh, break away from the CPP to become the uh, EFF, the same way in which Nkrumah leading the youth wing of the CPP, the UGCC, excuse me, broke away. So I think that while it, whether or not she eventually becomes uh, president or it becomes politically involved in a, in a larger sense, um, her presence alone is going to like shift things and make us reckon with this legacy. And I think similarly, I think that um, it's, I am happy that people are coming and people are um, sort of asking questions of, uh, is this the Ghana that we hear about? Is this the Ghana 
um, because I think that is possible. I think it, it, for now, right now, it seems like this is more of a, an introduction to Ghana as sort of a tourist mm-hmm. um, project, maybe a project of getting to, to know Accra and getting to see what are the things that are available. But um, it hasn't taken the next step to be in Krumah's um, in Krumah's uh, year of return, where you might have to go for a session at the Kwame Krumah uh, Ideological <laughs> Institute in Winneba, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. pass setting quizzes and setting tests. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, th- I don't think, I don't think. Hold on, hold on. I'm not going to let Anakwa get away with that. That was so, like, carefully crafted. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I need to go to the Ebro party when Ebro arrives in Ghana or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm just like, he's like compartmentalizing that. No, so- no, but I, I, I do think, I mean, I guess I do think that there's a, there's an image of Ghana, right, that you get that is, you know, whenever I talk to people from other countries, they're, they're like, oh, you can't complain about Ghana. Ghana is perfect. And um, in a way, I think having people go to Ghana and, and see what it's like for themselves will, will help. Um, shake that image and, and we'll sort of will we'll help make the, the government and people stand up because I think we've been sort of riding off of this Ghana is the gateway, you know, for a long time and it, it can continue to be, but there's a lot of work to be done. Um, so that's how I'm choosing to look at it. <laughs> I, I, was, I didn't, I, I wasn't there. I was there earlier. I was there in, in uh, July. So I didn't participate in all the parties. Uh, I saw them all on social media. I don't think Nkrumah would approve of, uh, <laughs> of Ghana, just, Ghana just as a, as a tourist site. One of the complaints I heard from some people, African-Americans who went and some uh, 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 West Indian Americans who, who live here in the States who went, was that when they, when they were here in, when, here in Accra, I wish, when they were in Accra or in Cape Coast, there were so many people from the Caribbean and the United States there, they really didn't interact with Ghanaians. So it was really mm-hmm. just, they, they didn't experience everyday life of Ghanaians. But I think it's a wonderful, I think it's a great, it's a great start. It's not in Krumah's year of return. But just to answer the question, I think uh, Pan-Africanism, this, the fact that it's still part of the conversation, major legacy of, of Nkrumah, his time in the United States, his interactions, everyday interactions with African-Americans, here in, in the US, particularly in Philadelphia, his interactions with West Indians and Africans from other parts of the continent during his time in London, bringing this sense of global blackness back to Accra, back to Ghana, this sense of a capacious Pan-Africanism, get away from the Casablanca and the Monrovia school thoughts of Pan-Africanism, but a more global blackness. It made him unique as an African leader, I think. Now, a lot of people in Ghana didn't quite understand that. Who are these Americans coming? Who are these Jamaicans coming? That Or Trinidadians in the case of George Padmore. And you're claiming that they're part of the African world. So he had a sense of a global blackness that didn't necessarily resonate. But his call when he comes to uh, New York and goes to Chicago and says, he has that speech in 50, 58, 59, those of you who want to come are welcome, come help build a, a modern Ghana. It's a nice, uh, a nice part of the turning point from the 1945 Pan-African Congress, where Pan-Africanism is no longer coming from abroad, no longer coming from Europe and the, and the Caribbean and the United States, but now it's centered in Africa, centered in, in, in Ghana, making it again, this, this gateway. So I think that part of the legacy still lives on. In symbols, when you walk around, you see Black Star Square and the Black Star on this flag and the Black Star's football team. So his legacy lives on in that respect. So anytime we have a year of return where people are engaging Ghana in a positive sense and going back 
enthused about it. And there are many people who've moved, many Jamaica, big stars like Rita Marley, Marley to small business people from Jamaica, Trinidad, and the United States, who've moved to Ghana in particular. Tanzania also is part of the conversation, and of course, South Africa. But I think that's part of Nkrumah's legacy. Pan-Africanism lives on in a perhaps a more commercial way, not the same political economic mm -hmm. relations that Nkrumah envisioned, but I, I still think it, it, it lives on. It's a very, very important part of his legacy. I, I mean, I wanna, sorry, I mean, Sean, I think you wanna add something, yeah, but I also wanna ask a question that relates to exactly what Ben just said. I forgot the name of this YouTube channel, but there's this guy who goes around interviewing um, African, Africans from the diaspora who's moved to Ghana. He uses a lot of drone, <laughs> drone photography. But I don't know, Nakwa, if you, you and Ben know this program, but he's, he's a short guy. What am I? Yeah, it, you two, anybody, who, anybody who, who wants to see this kind of, the continuation of this kind of politics. I mean, he doesn't talk about Nkrumah or anything, or there's very little politics to it. But, you know, in, in, in itself, it's definitely a kind of uh, Ghana as a gateway. Like, it's mm -hmm. very well done. Mm -hmm. Interviews all kinds of people from Britain, from, like, um, the U.S., from the Caribbean, just ordinary people, business people, regular people, students, tourists, who eventually just end up moving there. Um, and I, I'm, I'm addicted to the program. But yeah, anyway, I just wanted to mention that. I don't know, where, where, else could you do, where else could you do that? Could you do that in, in Dar es Salaam the way you could do it in Accra? Or I don't think you could maybe, do it. Maybe Cape Town, maybe Cape Town you could no, do it. No, not really. If, you, if you're black and you go to Cape Town, I know Cape Townians are gonna hate me for saying this. <laughs> nah. No. <laughs> so besides Accra, I can't yeah. think of another place. Yeah. It's Johannesburg. I would say yes, in the early... That's what I meant to say. I meant to say Johannesburg. Yeah. yeah. Before Will ask, I think this is an interesting little quick side note. Joburg was really attractive right after the end of apartheid, sort of that, just after 94. A lot of African-Americans, people from the Caribbean who moved there and then started life anew and were very mm -hmm. successful there. Right. Well, they're still, mm -hmm. you know, their children... They've started new, you know, new lives. They they don't go. They don't live in the U.S. That's not their country anymore. So yeah, this I think Joburg, Johannesburg, <laughs> Joburg, Johannesburg, uh, definitely Dar Dar es Salaam is the other one. But I think um, Akram, yeah, it's sort of like first prize in that mm. kind of whole politics. Yeah, I've known people. But it's it's interesting. I mean, it's 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 interesting that we found ourselves talking about Joburg because I think it relates to the question I wanted to ask, which is to make the reflection that, you know, Joburg uh, is a city where we could do what you guys are talking about, but it's simultaneously the city where, uh, on the one hand, you have a lot of cosmopolitan Joburgers who buy into this vision of Accra as a gateway to Africa, as reclaiming this, this pre-colonial African past that was, that was robbed from us. But on the other hand, it's also a city in which a lot of Joe Burgers are extremely xenophobic. They're extremely hostile to other Africans. So the question I wanted to ask is, how do we re-articulate Nkrumah's vision of Pan-Africanism, which went beyond, Ben, as you were saying, this commercial brand of, of, of Pan-Africanism mm -hmm. that was about selling Africa as this product, trying to establish Africa as this domineering powerhouse, but was really about this universal ambition of restructuring the global order as a whole, and not just for Africans, but for the entire globe, about saying that you know capitalism doesn't work for anyone. Um, how do we change things? That's one of those <laughs> questions. Do we, do we have an hour? I hate. If we're going to close soon, I hate to end on a pessimistic note, but I just don't think you can. 
in this moment. I don't think you can. I think we have a set of leaders who are are not only more concerned with their own sovereignty and integrity, but their own positions of power. I think Nkrumah ran into that, of course, in 63 at the OAU meeting when folks decided against a more confederated uh, Pan-Africanism. He didn't really, it was, it was, the United States of Africa was dead on arrival. Um, but we ha I can't say that entirely, we, that, is, that is to be pessimistic. We do have this. So Nkrumah is, is, is trying to work with Guinea in 58 when France is trying to undermine it, works with Mali at independence, right, to create this confederation, says he plans to work with Patrice Lumumba, but I would say ECOWAS is real. ECOWAS is something, right? It's, it's, it's doing things. So these regional blocks perhaps are a possibility. Um, but I just think that the weakness of leaders' political positions, which lead to repression, I think is just so powerful in so many places. He, he wasn't up against that type of, uh, and early on when he was envisioning this, he wasn't up against those types of regimes. I think the possibilities were real to them, although they weren't as real as they believed them to be. So I, I think we need a new type of Pan-Africanism. We can't go back to an old type. There has to be a new, we have to envision a new, these relationships. I think Ghana is beginning to do that. We, if we get away from this, this uh, commodification and commercialism, perhaps we can get somewhere back to the politics of it. Nkrumah was a socialist. How alive is socialism in Africa today? I would say not very, not very. But I think we need to envision a new Pan-Africanism, and for that, I'm 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 optimistic. I would I would say I, I would agree and say that I think Grima had is saying that Siki first a political kingdom, and then everything else would come. And I think what it seems to me, at least at this moment, calls for seeking the economic kingdom. And what I mean by that is that the with the the Africa free trade area that is we talked about, mm -hmm. for instance. Uh, this is part of something that Nkrumah wanted at that uh, meeting, right? And and so these are developments, if well done, can allow for individual people to to have connections, businesses, things that are not outside of the state necessarily, but you know allow for internal thriving. I think also we've had a uh, as we talk about the year of return and people coming back and people starting businesses. I think. I, I hope that there are developments that move away from sort of being under the control of the state itself and to sort of generate things around themselves and things that are started in, you know, farm farming starting in the north, in the in the east, in, in the Brongahafa region where I'm from, and you know, all of these other places which are not Accra sort of generate themselves, attract people uh, people to themselves and are able to uh, shake the economy from being the top top-down one in which sort of access to resources means access to power and that is just going to continue being the case over and over again we would love to ask uh raise more questions by our viewers but i think we've run out of time and i'm gonna have to um close things here um just as a, as a parting shot there's a really beautiful photograph behind anakwa um and i've been the whole program while he's talking i just i've been wanting to ask him like who is that like who is that on the photograph Oh, it's just it's just my grandparents, um, and 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 my mom is the uh, I don't know how to <laughs> at this point here. This is my mom. Oh, nice. Yeah. See, that, that, that's that's what the show is about. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank our guests Ben Talton and Aqua Domena and earlier Greek um, Gruchawa, Will Soki, myself Sean Jacobs, and the producer Antoinette Engel. Thanks for watching. You can view the program. The program will be on the YouTube channel for like at least the next two days. After that, you have to watch it via our Patreon. 
um, and you can only watch highlights here on YouTube. So thanks to our guests. This was a great, wonderful program. Great discussion. Um, uh, I don't want to give away for next week because I, we're trying to just secure like a really cool guest. But thanks, everybody. Have a nice day. Enjoy. Goodbye. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Will. Thanks, guys.